appreciative of that. And uh, I just, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. The, the first year that I came was 2020. And so there was like, uh, you know, I don't know if it was a tenth of the people that are here tonight were here. Um, and I was mostly talking to those cameras back there. And uh, so it's, it's refreshing now. I kind of have seen both. So it's refreshing to see each of you tonight, although certainly want to appreciate those that are able to join online as well for one reason or another. Um, Tonight, my topic, as you can see on the screen, is Jesus, name above all names, a more excellent name. And the name we're looking at, or the title that we're looking at, is the word Messiah. Uh, we're going to do a lot of kind of background work on this word Messiah before we get to, really what we're going to do is take a really roundabout way of getting to our destination, which is ultimately application. We're going to get there, but before we do that, we have to lay a lot of groundwork if we're going to begin to have a grasp of this word Messiah. See, it's interesting, Jesus' main description that he was referred to by the earliest Christians, the New Testament church and, and the subsequent early church that comes out of the New Testament church, out of the first century. The, the main way that Jesus was referred to was as the Messiah. Now, we'll talk about how that might get lost in translation a little bit uh, in just a moment. But I want to start by defining for us what this word means. You may have heard in, in sermons or classes or lessons, many of you may already know exactly what it means, but uh, this word Messiah and people talk about how the Jews during Jesus' uh, time when Jesus came into the world, they had this messianic expectation. They were expecting a Messiah to come. But what does this word mean, Messiah? It's a Hebrew word and it, it simply means, and I, you know it's helpful if you turn these things on, there we go. It, it simply means an anointed one, somebody who has been set apart, somebody who's been consecrated. And the word has a pretty interesting backstory in the Old Testament long before we get to Jesus. And I'm going to put on the slide here three different ways that people are anointed or three different types of people that are anointed in the Old Testament at one time or at many times. Uh, the Old Testament priests in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 3, you talk about the high priest is anointed with oil and he's in that moment consecrated or set apart for the purpose of being a priest. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16, Elijah anoints Elisha as a prophet, as the, really the successor to him. Uh, and he anoints him, his head with oil, and consecrates him or sets him apart as a prophet. But the vast majority of the time in the Old Testament, when it comes to someone being anointed, it has to do with somebody being made king. In 1 Samuel 16, we get probably the best known story that has to do with the anointing of a king, but it's not the first. That's the story of David being anointed by Samuel. And you might remember that Samuel comes out to Jesse's house and Jesse's land, and he's looking for, God's directed him here, he's looking for a king to replace Saul. And as he's out there at Jesse's place, he sees uh, the first son and the second son, and I don't know how many sons Jesse had, but he sees son after son after son, and every time Samuel is thinking to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed one. Surely this is the one who's going to be set apart to be the king. And the Lord continues to remind Samuel over and over again, 
It's not this one. It's not this one because I see something that you don't see. I don't look at external appearances. I can discern the heart. It's not him, not him, not him. And finally, Samuel says, do you have a child you're not telling me about? And he says, well, there's David, but he's out in the field. You know, I mean, I can call him. So uh, they call David in and David becomes anointed to be the king. He's going to become king when Saul is no longer king. But even before that, Saul had been anointed as king. Uh, Saul had oil poured over his head by Samuel. And you might remember, even in the story of David, that there are times, there, there are times when David and Saul are at such conflict, uh, Saul is trying to kill David. He wants David to die. And, and Saul, at one point, goes into a cave, and David is hiding in the cave, and David has an opportunity to kill Saul. He has an opportunity uh, to sort of, well, in a, in a way, defend himself, because Saul wants to kill him. But he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And the reasoning that he gives is that it would not be appropriate, it would not be right for him to strike down the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's, in a sense, Messiah. What you see in these three different usages of the word Messiah, or these three different offices that are consecrated through anointing, what you see is that the, the Jewish people, as they're reading in the Old Testament, and they're looking at this idea of Messiah and this person that they're expecting to come, that they're not necessarily thinking in terms of there's going to be this one person who's going to come and live a sacrificial life and do a lot of good things and do healing and die for our sins on a cross and raise from the dead again. Um, it, it's, it's much different than that, their expectation when Jesus is going to come into the world. It's helpful at this point for me to just sort of uh, make sure that we're all on the same page because um, it, there's only really a couple of places in the New Testament that make this abundantly clear to us. Um, the word Messiah, which is a Hebrew word, has the same meaning as the word, the Greek word Christ. So when I say that Jesus' main description in the early church is as Messiah, what I mean is when we think of Jesus, we think of almost his last name being Christ, right? It's not his last name, it's a title, but we think about it in those terms because the word Christ has become so associated in the New Testament and beyond with Jesus. And the question that we're going to be looking at tonight is, why? Why? As we saw, the number one way, and you can see on the screen there, the number one way that the people looked at the anointed one in the Old Testament what had to do with the crowning of a king. Uh, and so there was an expectation, perhaps, of someone who was coming who was going to be king. But we want to ask the question, why is it, of all the different names that could be chosen for Jesus, or the titles that could be chosen for Jesus, why is it Messiah or Christ and I'll use those interchangeably tonight, why is it that that is the title, that is the description that stands out above all others in the New Testament to refer to Jesus? That's, that's part of what we'll be looking at here in just a moment. The Jews were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting someone to come, and they didn't have the expectation that he was going to come and live the kind of life that Jesus did, but they had expectations for what he might be like. If you look over in Isaiah chapter 61, 
Isaiah 61, uh, and, and we're going to revisit this here in just a moment as well uh, from the New Testament. But if you look at Isaiah 61, specifically, really the first couple of verses there uh, has to do with an anointed one, somebody who has been anointed. Uh, if you look here, a Messiah, if you look here, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. In other words, the Lord has made me his Messiah to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And you can keep reading there because it's all very good, but you can see just from those first three verses in Isaiah 61 that there's some kind of an expectation that this anointed one is going to come and he is both going to bring peace and, uh, uh, and, and basically relief to the people of God, and at the same time, he's going to come in judgment and vengeance. He's going to come with wrath toward those that are resisting God's people and who are perhaps persecuting God's people. Now imagine then that you are a Jew living in the first century and you know there's been somebody that's been talked about who's going to come. He's going to bring relief to my people. He's going to bring judgment upon our enemies. And you live in a world that is dominated and owned by Rome, and you also live in a world where even your own religious leaders are very often corrupt, what kind of Messiah might you be expecting? Well, it seems rather clear from reading the New Testament that they were expecting someone who would come wielding a sword, who would come, uh, basically, uh, we'll see Jesus riding on a donkey in a little while as one of our key stories, but uh, someone riding instead on a, on a powerful horse, leading an army, leading the charge. And at times in the New Testament, people even try to make Jesus into that kind of king. They try to force him to become king, and he slips through their grasp each time it happens. Uh, for instance, John chapter 6 would be one of them. But, um, but you see this idea there. They're looking for somebody to lead them, and they're looking for somebody to deliver them from their enemies. And it might surprise you, I don't know, it may not, but it might surprise you, it surprised me when I first started learning about this, that Jesus was not the only Messiah, or would-be Messiah, that came along in the history of the Jews. Um, Jesus' Jesus's entry onto the scene around, you know, uh, the year, the turn of B.C. to A.D., uh, when Jesus came into the world, there had already been, and there would be for a few decades after that, uh, or several, several decades after that, there would be some people, uh, some individuals, that would raise themselves up and claim to be the anointed one of God, who would claim to be able to lead the people, who would claim to be the king, the person that everyone should follow, and who would claim to be able to lead them into battle against their enemies, most notably Rome. And, and each of those instances, 
these uh, rebels are met with death. They're met with destruction and devastation. One of them, as many people have pointed out, one of them actually called in as a proof text for uh, his role in leading the people in battle. I'm just going to read this for you, but it's in Numbers 24. It's Balaam's oracles, uh, his last oracles. Um, but he, he says this applies to him. It's, it's verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What's a scepter? A king, a ruler. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly. Okay, all on and on it goes talking about this person having success in battle. And he says, this is about me. I'm that star that's come out of Jacob. I'm the Messiah. That's the kind of person that many people living in the time of Jesus were looking for when it came to a Messiah. And so we're left asking the question, why is it that the early church, led by the Holy Spirit, of course, why is it that they looked at this word Messiah and they kept coming back to it again and again saying, this is the description we should have for Jesus. This is the thing that he should be known by more than anything else. After all, the Christians go on to be called Christians, right? Um, not Jesusians. They're, they're called Christians, followers of the Christ, followers of the Messiah. And it probably originated as a mockery. We'll see that in a second. But, but, but they, they keep it. They, it. It sticks that people that follow Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are Christians, followers of the Messiah. And the question we want to ask is, why? Why? Because... We have a few questions, and, and there's a, a, a good book that's written about this, that, or at least that deals with it in part by a guy named N.T. Wright, but um, he, he points out three problems that we have when it comes to identifying Jesus primarily as the Messiah or the Christ, and I want to just bring them to you because I think he raises some good problems. He, he provides in his book solutions, okay? He's not saying these are uh, reasons not to believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they're worth our, our consideration. The first one is, are there better or more accurate titles or descriptions that would perhaps better be the name, if we're going to say, we're just going to give Jesus one title to go with him, that would better encompass what Jesus came to do than Christ? Uh, after all, uh, why emphasize so much the kingly nature of Jesus? Don't we want to emphasize him as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Lord, as the Creator, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, a title Jesus uses to apply to himself uh, very often from Daniel chapter 7? Why Messiah? Well, that's a good question. That, that's an interesting question. Here's another question. Why call Jesus by a name, by a title, that would invite persecution from, well, from both Rome and from Israel? 
Because think about it, if you are someone who is in, in the Roman government, if you're, someone, if you're an official or if you're Caesar himself, the Romans did not tolerate anyone trying to take away their authority and their power. In fact, we have documentations of, documentation of Christians being killed because uh, they refused to worship the emperor, worship the Caesar. Um, so to call Jesus the Christ is to call him the king, and the Romans say, there's no king but Caesar. There's no final authority but Caesar. So why are you calling this man Christ? But think about it also, it, it would invite persecution from the Jews on two fronts. On the one hand, you have Jews that are very passionate religiously for what's going on in temple worship and in synagogues and everything else. And so they're going to feel very threatened by this person, Jesus, who has started changing things and started teaching different things. So from a religious perspective, you're going to have like the Pharisees, uh, especially the Pharisees, who are not going to be happy with how things are shaking out there. They're going to be persecuting Christians for trying to distort the religion that they love. But then on the other hand, you also have politically minded Jews who say Israel already has a king. Because if you remember, Jesus came into an Israel that already had a king. His name was Herod, right? And you encounter even in the New Testament these people called the Herodians, people that are on Herod's side saying, Herod and his family, they're the ones that should be the king. More persecution. But, but thirdly, and, and perhaps uh, most uh, interesting of all, not only why invite persecution, but why invite ridicule by consistently referring to Jesus as the Messiah? Because after all, Jesus died on a cross, on a Roman cross. Jesus suffered the fate that was reserved for people who tried to lead insurrections against Rome. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. Why? To the Romans. Why? Because the, the Lord, the Christ, the King, He died on the cross. We killed Him, they would say. So to say Jesus is the King amongst the, the Greeks, amongst the Romans, would be to invite ridicule. Uh, similarly, from the Jews, they would say, see, we told you. We told you he couldn't do it. In fact, even standing there at the cross, you remember some of them were saying, um, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. If you really are this person you claim to be, come on down off that cross and let's have a, let's have a talk. Deliver yourself. Why invite ridicule? And yet, again and again, the early Christians insisted that the name of Jesus would be associated with, above all else, the word Christ, the word Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And so we ask the question, why? Certainly, we would say the resurrection has something to do with that. We would say that Jesus rose from the dead, and so the early Christians could say, yes, he did die. Yes, I know you want to ridicule us, but Jesus is, he's alive, he's living. He defeated death. That has something to do with it. But what I'd like to say really is that Jesus' death and resurrection merely serves to validate the claims that Jesus made during his life about who he was. 
And when the resurrection had been completed, the early church was able to look back and see what Jesus did and understand not just that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, but to have the whole category of that word reshaped in their mind. Because what they're expecting is a, uh, a hero on a horse wielding a sword against Rome, but instead they find the Lamb of God sacrificed on the cross. And so the question is, what is Messiah after all? What is the, the role of the Messiah after all? And so what we're going to do is look at basically four events in Jesus's life where he points us to his identity as the Messiah. So we'll see that Jesus clearly believed that he was the Messiah. The resurrection proves it. But he also helps shape our view of Messiah in these events. We're also going to look at, and the fifth category, uh, or the fifth event, will be a couple of personal conversations, which is where we'll start when we talk about Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, let's start by looking at a couple of personal conversations that Jesus had in, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we could start, well, there, there's several places that we could start, but we'll start just by thinking about Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. This would be in John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus and this woman are having a conversation at the well, and Jesus has asked for some water, and he's entered into this wonderful conversation with her. Jesus shows uh, his his knowledge of her, his compassion for her, uh, his desire to make a connection with a Samaritan a person that would have been hated by Jews. Nevertheless, in the midst of this conversation, this woman is largely the, the first person to hear plainly from Jesus' own mouth that he is the Messiah. She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. The anointed one comes. He who is called Christ. See what John just did there, by the way, for us? He's connecting the Hebrew word Messiah, Greek word Christ. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's not a lot of debate there about whether or not Jesus viewed himself to be the Messiah, right? It's, it's pretty much as plain as day. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, as we look at John chapter 4 and we consider Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman, it's pretty interesting that perhaps his first just direct revelation of being the Messiah is his revealing that he is the anointed king to a Samaritan, somebody that the people of Israel despised hated, um, viewed as being uh, less than an enemy, literally being worth less than their worst enemies. And Jesus says, hey, I can give you living water. I can give you water that you'll drink of it and you'll never go thirsty again. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the Messiah. It's pretty interesting because I'm guessing if you're expecting a Jewish king to arise who's going to vanquish Israel's enemy and restore Israel to its proper place as a global world power, I'm just guessing that you wouldn't anticipate his first self-revelation to be to a poor Samaritan woman who is a social outcast because of her past I'm guessing that's not the first person that you would tell and in a sense offer an invitation to. And of course she goes out and she starts telling everybody, I've, I've found somebody that's told me everything that I've ever done and it's a wonderful story. 
but already we're seeing this reshaping. We fast forward a little bit, and, and I realize I'll have to move through these rather quickly, but we fast forward a little bit chronologically. We go backward in our Bible to Matthew chapter 16, and we find Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Uh, the, the, the disciples and the community, everybody's talking about Jesus, and Jesus asks his disciples, who are people saying that I am? Who do, who, what do people say? What's the, what's the talk? What's everybody think of me? And, and they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, or, or the Son of Man is, rather. Some people say that he's John the Baptist. Others say he's Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but, but who do you say that I am? And what is Peter's confession upon which the church is built? You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the anointed one. And even Peter in this moment doesn't have a full understanding of what that looks like. We know because as his life continues to progress before Jesus' resurrection, Peter makes some mistakes associated with how he views Jesus and what Jesus should be doing. I mean, Peter's the one who pulls out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. This is not what this is about. Clearly, Peter still has in his mind some sense of a king riding in on a horse, wielding a sword. But nevertheless, he's on the right track. Jesus is the anointed one. But look at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Not because Jesus thought the word wouldn't get out eventually. Of course not. Not that Jesus didn't want to be known as the Christ. Of course not. But it wasn't quite the hour that was appointed for Jesus to die on the cross. And so he says, don't, don't start sharing. Because it's dangerous to call Jesus the Messiah, you see. It's, it's dangerous to call Jesus the Christ. Because to call him the Christ is to call him the king. And to call him the king is to invite persecution and then later ridicule from Rome and from the Jews. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody just yet. Let's talk about some events in Jesus' ministry that point to his understanding of himself as the Messiah and his reshaping of the term Messiah altogether. The first place I want you to look at is the story of Jesus reading in the synagogue. This would be in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters into the synagogue in Nazareth, and, and while he's there, he's going to stand up, and he's going to open up a scroll, and he's going to literally um, scroll down, not scroll on his tablet, you know, he's going to scroll down on the scroll until he gets to a particular passage. And that passage he reads in, uh, in this would be verse 17, um, or rather verse 18, but he goes to the prophet Isaiah, he scrolls all the way down to chapter 61, the verse that we read not long ago, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, now, just time out really quickly here. Nobody would necessarily think it was strange for Jesus to be reading from Isaiah in the synagogue. It's what happens after that's the problem. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he simply rolled the scroll and gave it to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They realized this guy only read three verses, and it seemed to be pretty pointed. The eyes of them were, all, were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says pretty much unequivocally, I am that person who's in that passage who says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. I'm the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying here, although they don't necessarily have eyes and ears to fully comprehend it. At first, they're astonished by it. At first, they're amazed and they're very interested. Isn't this Mary and Joseph's kid? You know, that's what they start saying to each other. They're saying, isn't, this, isn't he the son of the carpenter? But after Jesus talks to them for a little while longer, if you go down into verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. It's a dangerous thing to call yourself a Messiah. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Here, Jesus is speaking about a prophecy being fulfilled that has to do with, uh, basically, with hope, with peace, with uh, healing, with restoration. It has to do with liberty and freedom. And he says it's been fulfilled today. It's being fulfilled today in your hearing. I think that's a pretty significant reshaping even in that moment because Rome's still in power. The system is still needs a lot of cleansing, as we'll see in a moment. And yet Jesus can say, today this has started to happen. Today, today this is happening. I'm the anointed one, and I'm, maybe Jesus is bringing a different kind of peace, a different kind of hope, a different kind of liberty to the world than the world is expecting. Maybe he's not going to come riding in on a white horse, wielding his sword against Rome, Maybe he's going to do something altogether different. Nevertheless, they're ready to kill him for it. That's during Jesus' own life. And we see the same thing happening to Jesus' followers who continue to insist he's the Messiah. Uh, number four, or number three, rather, the triumphal entry. You, you fast forward in the story of Luke to, the, or actually, let's look at Matthew's. I mean, it's in both. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 21, uh, Matthew is going to provide us with a really uh, a series of events, all of which point to Jesus as the Messiah. The first one is the triumphal entry here. And, and if you look, this is, interestingly, when I was here, I think, two times ago, in 2020, I believe my topic that year was Zechariah, um, unless I have it if it was last year. But anyway, it was Zechariah one of the times. And, and a couple of passages from Zechariah leap out to us in Matthew 21 and in the, the subsequent story that we'll look at. Uh, one of them, though, is here in 21 chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus is going to come in riding on a donkey, but it says this, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king. What did we say Messiah essentially comes to mean? King. Your Messiah, your king, is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples go and they do that. And you know in verse 9, the crowds are going before him. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and even the Pharisees are going to look at Jesus and say, would you please rebuke your disciples that they're, they're saying all of this? They're causing an uproar. What are you, why are you letting this happen? But Zechariah has already told us, your king is coming to you, but he's coming humble. Humility and kingship 
in their world and to be honest in our world don't go hand in hand. Uh, a king or a, a political leader, whether they're a king or a president or a prime minister or whatever else, humility and authority via the word uh, or in light of the world standards are almost always in conflict with one another but not so with Jesus. Again, Messiah being reshaped. Uh, you keep reading down into verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus, in cleansing the temple, is bringing into fruition another Zechariah passage, uh, Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, as well as Zechariah 14, 21. Both talk about how the, the king and this anointed one have the authority to cleanse the temple, and that eventually there's going to be a day when the mistreatment of the poor is not going to be tolerated in the temple. And Jesus goes into the temple, and he starts throwing over the, the corrupt tables of the money changers and those who are taking advantage of the poor who have just come simply to worship God and to get right with God. And Jesus, he throws over the tables, he drives out the livestock and all of that. And he's enacting what Zechariah has already been saying. He's, he's proving in this moment, I believe I am that guy. I believe I am that Messiah who's come. And Jesus drives everything out, cleansing the temple. But he also speaks of a different cleansing that will take place. He speaks of the destruction of the temple. In Matthew 24, a couple chapters later, Jesus speaks rather extensively about the destruction of Jerusalem and about, uh, in, a, in a sense, his judgment upon uh, Jerusalem, but his judgment upon the temple in particular, or with particular emphasis, because of the corruption that was growing inside the temple and because of the defilement that had taken place. And so Jesus, even in the beginning of John's gospel, he's going to say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Why? Because Jesus as the Messiah, as Zechariah shows us, Jesus as the Messiah has the authority to cleanse and he even has the authority to rebuild the temple. And Jesus here is saying, I'm going to destroy the temple and I am going to establish a new temple. Uh, and that temple is going to be my own body. And, and we know that there's some beauty in the New Testament as we uh, all get to experience life as God's temple. And, and that's another lesson for another day. Well, it is and it isn't. It's another lesson for a few minutes from now. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple and he says, I'll destroy it. The final thing that I want you to look at is, and this is the most paradox, paradoxical of them all, this doesn't seem like it could be possible or should be possible that this would be a sign. Uh, I said the triumphal entry. I never put on the slide, the cleansing of the temple. Um, this, this next one should not be possible to be a sign of Jesus being the anointed king. And yet, the early Christians are going to insist that it is precisely in this moment that Jesus was clearly seen to be the king the king of kings. That moment would be nothing less than the crucifixion. The very moment that would cause an opportunity for ridicule and persecution. Surely this isn't the Messiah, says the world, 
would be the, the very moment that the early church would look back to and say, of course, this was the Messiah. It's very interesting, isn't it? Wiz, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, it's folly to the Greeks, it's a stumbling block to the Jews, but to those who believe, it is the power of God for salvation. It's Christ, the wisdom of God, and the power of God. And that's what the early church, and that's what the New Testament writers make clear to us in their understanding of the crucifixion. You don't have to look at the apostles' writings, though, to see God's hand working in crowning Jesus as the king when he dies on the cross. Yes, of course, he has the crown of thorns and he has the purple robe, so there's sort of a, a kingly-type mockery that goes on, but there's something else, something even more pointed that Pilate does to poke fun at the Jews to offend them, which it, it certainly, the, literally the cross was folly, it was a laughing stock to the Romans and a stumbling block to the Jews. Um, but in so doing, he provides a, a testimony for all time that while he didn't see it, God saw it and God arranged for it. And that would be that above Jesus' head, as he's dying there on the cross, as he's on the cross uh, suffering for our sins, you remember what the inscription says. And, and he even had it, made sure that it was written in many different languages, several languages, so that uh, everybody could read it. The King of the Jews. The Messiah. And the Jews say, please take that down. And he says, what I've written, I've written. But he wrote far more accurately than he knew. Because the church would look back and say, that's exactly who was there. That's exactly who was dying. And when Jesus resurrected from the dead, it became clear for all time that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and that all of the things that he did and taught and said had become true. So, despite what some people have attempted to claim, uh, Jesus' followers did not invent the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus clearly taught that about himself, and Jesus is vindicated in that when he's resurrected from the dead and he appears to the disciples and he appears to, you know, hundreds of people see the risen Jesus. They can see, here is the King, here is the Messiah who claimed all of these things. But in resurrecting from the dead in being vindicated as the Messiah, to believe in Jesus is to have your entire conception of the word Messiah, what the king should be, changed. Because when Jesus resurrected from the dead, in a way it would have been easier if he stayed dead. Because all of this talk of love and self-sacrifice and humility being the way uh, to, to make an impact, to be a way to make an influence, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, all of that could have just stayed dead with Jesus. But if Jesus raises from the dead, all of the sudden we have to take very seriously the kind of king Jesus presents himself as being. It is true that the king, the anointed one, is pictured in Psalm 2 as ruling with a rod of iron, shattering the nations. But it's also true that in Revelation, John is standing there and there's a scroll that needs to be opened and it can't be opened. And John is, is wanting some, who's, and he's getting distraught and he's weeping and he's mourning. And, and they say, don't be upset. There's somebody here who can open the scroll. And he said, who's going to open the scroll? And they say, the Lion of Judah. 
is going to open the scroll. The Messiah, the king, that warrior riding in on a white horse, wielding the sword, roaring with all of his uh, ferocity. And John says, and I got up and I turned and I looked and I saw one coming who was like a, son, like a lamb who had been slain. He says, they said he was a lion, but he's a lion who is the lamb. And, and as we think about that total reshaping, it is now that we turn our attention to thinking about some application points, because I think there's a lot of application to be had, and I know I'm going to have to give it to you in just about, you know, seven minutes or so, and I'm going to do my best to do that. But what, I, what I'd like to do is basically just give you three things, three three reshaped beliefs that we can have because Jesus is the Messiah, or that we must have because Jesus is the Messiah. Two or three uh, uh, huge words that have lessons to be preached about each and every one of these words, but our understanding of these words is changed because Jesus is the King. And, and the first one, it has to do with power. Uh, if we're going to be followers of the Messiah, our understanding of power must change. Because the king of kings does not rule in the way that the world rules. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll just paraphrase this. But in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, Jesus is approached by uh, basically two of his disciples who are using their mom as kind of um, a leverage with Jesus to try to get Jesus to go along with their, their request. They say, let us sit at the right hand, at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus talks to them, and, and he then talks to all the disciples. And, and the thing that he says to them, he says, don't you know that the rulers of this world, the Gentile, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord over their power. They look at their subjects and they put their heel upon them and they say, I have the authority. I have the control. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, it cannot, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would want to be the first must be the last. Whoever wants to be the greatest must be the least. Jesus says, don't you know the Son of Man? That's another very, that word very closely connected to Messiah. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If I'm going to believe that Jesus is the King, that means I need to believe in a different kind of power. I need to have my view of what makes progress in the world. I need to have my view of what gets things done in the world totally reshaped. And, and, and we'll see that in our, our next word as well. The Messiah didn't come to be served. Is it possible as Christians that we can use even our faith as a way to gain control, as a way to gain power, as a way to gain influence, prestige, standing in whatever social circles, and try to, is it possible that even amongst ourselves, we can seek to lord over our positions, lord over um, our, our faith, lord over our righteousness, whatever the case might be, our influence, our connections over one another? And the answer, of course, is absolutely. But does our quest for power outside of our church life also have an impact on what we believe about the Messiah? I do not mean to say you should not go try to be the CEO of your company or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying 
do we seek whatever we are seeking in our career? Do we seek to accomplish that through the lording over power of the world? Or do we accept that maybe we won't get as far in this life? Maybe we'll get further, but maybe we won't get as far in this life. But we will instead choose the way of humility. We'll choose the way of self-sacrifice and service because that's what Messiah means. Number two, it means, and this is very closely connected, this means our view of mission has to change. It changes because similar, it's, it's tied up in the word power as well, but the king of kings has a mission, but his mission is not aligned with any mission of world powers, past, present, or future. So if I'm going to be a follower, there's a reason Christians died for calling Jesus the Messiah, because people back then understood this is a threat to us in terms of um, these people are going to give their final allegiance to Jesus. May that be able to be said of us, that people could look at us from the world and say, you know what, these people will follow Jesus to the end not their political party, not their favorite author or their favorite blogger or their favorite news source or their favorite YouTube channel or whatever the case might be. May, may it be possible that we could be persecuted. Not that we would. I don't want us to be persecuted. I'm not over here praying, God, please send people to persecute us. But may the accusation be possible to be made against you and against me that we would follow Jesus no matter what to the very end. Our view of mission changes because it's not about advancing any worldwide agenda from any kind of uh, government or group or whatever the case might be. Instead, it's about advancing the message of good news from the Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means. Somebody that's come with a mission to change the world through self-sacrifice and service. And finally, Jesus is the anointed king but did you know in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says that we have been anointed by God's Spirit. We have, as he says in Romans chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are his children. And if we are children, Paul says, we are also heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 17. He says we're co-heirs with Christ. Can you imagine the unfathomable blessing that it is to be inheriting eternal glory with Jesus? That Jesus has identified himself so much with us that he would not call us just, uh, we would not call him, rather, just our Lord. But Hebrews says... He was willing to be called our brother, our brother. And he says we're co-heirs of that kingdom. That means that we have a reshaped identity. Our identity, it comes not from what we do, not from who we know, not from how successful our family is or our children are or our grandchildren are, uh, not from uh, how we feel things are going in our society, in our country, and uh, this region, in our culture, whatever the case might be, that our sense of identity is rooted firmly and finally in the fact that we are the beloved of God, sealed and anointed by God's Spirit who's living in us. If that's our identity, 
then I can tell you when it comes to our mission and when it comes to our power, we're going to have a reshaped understanding. If our identity is rooted firmly and finally in Christ, then we're going to understand our mission as being introducing others to Jesus and providing them with an opportunity to become those adopted children of God, to join us, and that they would look at us as their brothers and their sisters, that they will be co-heirs of glory with forever. This word Messiah has a lot to it, and there's a lot that we didn't cover tonight, but the point is, Jesus is king. And when you read Jesus Christ in the New Testament, I hope that each of us will remember that it's not a last name, it's a, it's a title. Jesus is king. And it's a dangerous thing, but it is the most life-giving thing that there's ever been to believe that Jesus is your Messiah, your King. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, I, I want to have my view of power, mission, and identity reshaped. I want to be anointed by God's Spirit. I want to be sealed, set apart as, as a co-heir with Christ. I want to be baptized into Christ. I want to have my sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, by the grace of our Lord. I want to follow Jesus each and every day of my life. We want to offer you the invitation to do that tonight as we stand and sing.